The theme for tonight, brothers and sisters, is surviving the post-modern age, the power of simple faith. I'm going to ask our brother Ron to come forward. Thanks, Brother Chairman, and good evening, my dear brethren and sisters, and especially our young people. The Apostle John said that we must have a conquering faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We noticed in verse 7 of that reading that Noah had that conquering faith. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. And we need that faith because the world around us is becoming increasingly ignorant of God. The society around us is totally at odds with God's values and morals. And we have to have a faith that survives unto the end. It says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. And so our object tonight is to consolidate our faith, very needful in the face of a corrupt and godless age. And before the Lord comes, we expect to see the days of Noah and Lot repeated on the earth. And looking outside, you can see them very clearly outside these walls. But what we must be worried about, brethren and sisters, is the decline and defections amongst the sons of God. You imagine the grief of Enoch and Noah, as over the years they saw the gradual erosion of the separateness that had once existed between the sons of God and the sons of men. And as the slide continued, their pleas falling on deaf ears as they went from door to door, and the sons of God fell away to the world. And the more wicked our world becomes, the less re relevant the truth can seem to our young people. And even some older members have fallen away. The Lord surely said, when iniquity abounds, love will wax cold. In the 90s, the world adopted the evil doctrine of humanism. That's about 30 years ago. Humanism said there was no God, no afterlife, no judgment, no accountability. All morals are fluid and relative. And it's all about you and the good life. Human existence was all about you getting the best out of the short life you had because there was nothing afterwards. Your freedom, your rights and equal opportunity were the catchwords of humanism. There was in it, as you can see, that men thought that by human goodness and reason and science they would solve the world's problems. Instead, it bred selfishness, as God foretold that it would. That in the last days, men would be lovers of their own selves. So the 90s were characterised as the me generation. It's all about me. Today, they call it the me, me, me generation. A generation known for taking constant selfies and promoting oneself on Facebook. But humanism largely failed. And so it morphed into what is called today postmodernism. The difference between humanism and postmodernism is that postmodernism has few grand aims like humanism did. They don't believe anymore that they can solve the world's problems by human reason and goodness. Postmodernism is all about toleration of differences and the promotion of self. And so our age is now called the postmodern world. In this paradigm, there are no absolutes, no final truth. All humans are equal and every man does that which is right in his own eyes. It impacts upon our personal life because it's in everything that you see and read in the advertising. And sadly, it impacts upon our ecclesial life, as I will mention shortly. Postmodernism can sound very reasonable, but so did the serpent. To define postmodernism, I'm going to use their own words, to be fair. This is a man called Kruger, a postmodernist. He says this Postmodernity, in contrast to modernism or humanism, rejects any notion of objective truth. 
insist that the only absolute in the universe is that there are no absolutes. I think about postmodernism, that you can never nail a definition down because they believe they have to keep moving with the times. There are no absolutes. Tolerance is the, is the supreme virtue and exclusivity, that is, thinking that you're right and others are wrong, is the supreme vice. Truth is not grounded in reality or in any authoritative text, but is simply constructed by the mind of the individual or society. And you can see very clearly the challenge that presents to the way that we think. Again, using their own words of what postmodernism is. There is no one truth, only many valid truths. No principles, only preferences. No one grand reason for us to be here, only reasons. No grand narrative, no Bible story, no from the beginning God created. And notice this one in blue. To the postmodernist, the true believer is the real danger. The real threat is not error, but intolerance. And my perception is all that matters. And what you get from the postmodern worlds is pressure for political correctness, whether it's right or wrong. You get the need to accept every truth as being equally valid in its context. Just driving around, you can see the impact this has upon the churches around us. Have you noticed how the churches around us are becoming non-denominational in the way they advertise themselves? They hide any concept of unique truth or their doctrinal differences. This is just a few I noticed just driving around in one day. The Unity Church, the Victory Church, the Journey Church, the Family Church, the Overcomers Church, the Life Point Church. The AOG out there at Paradise used to be the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal Church. It's now the Influencers Church. Why have they all changed their titles? Because the world says there is no absolute right truth. So it's all about now what you might get out of it. But totally non-offensive, non-doctrinal, non-denominational. That's the pressure that the world is succumbing to. And even the Pope is doing his best to appear tolerant and inclusive in the things that he's saying. And we might laugh at that. But already one ecclesia interstate in Australia has officially stopped using the term brother or sister in their ecclesial meetings because it's seen as sexist and discriminatory language. That's the pressure that comes upon religion from the postmodern world. And we have a phenomenon we've never seen in the past. Where intelligent Christadelphians leaving the truth are slipping and fitting easily into the mainstream churches. Truth and doctrine are no longer critical to them anymore. It never used to happen in the past. People might have left the truth, but they very rarely went to another religion. Now they can just slide in and fit into other religions. And very sadly, some ecclesias are quite tolerant of error continuing in their midst. Where's this all coming from? Well, in the past 20 years, there's been a tidal wave of aggressive, virulent sceptics and atheists. If you listen to the ABC, you'll find that many of them are given airtime on the ABC quite frequently. Men rose up like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and they've had a tremendous impact in freeing people from the fear of God. You may not have read their books, or heard even their clever talks. But be assured, many people in the world have. Be assured their pernicious philosophies are now the standard approach in academia, education and the workplace culture. And if that wasn't bad enough and a challenge enough for us to face, we now have ex-Christadelphians doing their utmost to deconvert our members and especially undermine our young people. And they use the cyber world to find and corrupt uncertain and immature minds. I was recently sent 95 pages of Brother Rob Hindman's blog dedicated to that very purpose. So that's why we're going to revisit our foundations, brethren and sisters, to recall why we believe what we do believe. And we need to do that because most of our beliefs are becoming increasingly unacceptable to the postmodern age around us. For example, 
We believe in an all-powerful creator God who exists outside of time as we know it. A God who is infinite. A God who works in ways unknown to us. And yet a God who makes the most audacious claim on human intelligence. When he said in Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That is without fail the most dramatic opening sentence of any book ever written. And its implications are enormous. Postmodernism denies a creator God completely and dishonestly promotes evolution as a proven fact. Number two, we believe there's only one saving truth and that a precise understanding of the gospel and the atonement does matter for salvation. We also believe that other religions cannot and will not save. That confidence we have in holding the one and only truth is anathema in the postmodern world where all claimed truths are given equal value or credibility no matter how ridiculous they actually are. Number three, we believe that God has chosen one nation to be his special witnesses in the earth. We believe God will make that one nation the centre of his kingdom. That view about Israel is regarded as racism by the world today. We believe God will send his son Jesus back to the earth in flaming fire to obliterate all forms of evil, causing great destruction and loss of life. That belief is viewed as dangerous and radical by the postmodern world. We believe God will soon completely reorganise the world under a beneficent theocracy, a world ruled wisely from Jerusalem by Christ. Men will be obliged to learn God's ways, obey his laws and live in harmony with his creation. No huge cities, factories or consumerism will survive into the kingdom. That also is regarded as dangerous and radical. We believe that God today works with just a few faithful servants and he proposes to make them the centre of his kingdom and government in the future. That goes right against the postmodern concept of equal opportunity. We believe Yahweh has very clear moral boundaries and that in the past he justly exterminated the Sodomites, the Amalekites and the Canaanites the Bible says that God once again intends to remove from the earth all forms of rampant evil. Those facts alone repulse many postmodernists from even considering the God of the Bible because they claim that he commands and commits genocide. We believe that God hates false religion and will particularly bring his fiery wrath on the man of sin and the Catholic apostasy. We believe that God will exterminate every trace of its evil influence from the earth. And that cuts right across the postmodern concept of tolerance and equally valid truths. And they call it hate speech for us to speak so. We learn from the Bible that God in this life appoints varied but complementary roles for men and women. The world thinks it knows better and demands absolute equality on every front. And we believe that God must be understood on his own terms. That we must not follow the world's arrogant attitude to judge and condemn the God of the Bible on the basis of their twisted values and standards. And if me stating any of those clear Bible truths made you uncomfortable or stirred resentment initially in you, maybe we were more affected by the evil age than we care to admit. All of those things we teach and believe because the Bible clearly states them as facts given from God. And as time goes on, we'll either be increasingly ignored as irrelevant or perhaps persecuted for promoting such intolerant Bible-based beliefs. And so we must ask ourselves, can the Bible be trusted? Why do we believe in God? Why do we make his word the arbiter of our beliefs? Well, there are four major factors that we're going to consider briefly tonight that lead us to the conclusion that God is, that the Bible is his book, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And these are the four factors, the witness of the, the planet and the universe around us, the brilliant accuracy of the Bible, 
fulfilled prophecy and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's take the first one, the silent witness of the creation. It's amazing we're sitting here tonight, we exist, we have consciousness, we have reasoning power. We can observe and appreciate that we live on a beautifully balanced planet, one ideally located in the solar system, blessed with a water cycle, equipped with the correct balance of gases to sustain life, a world populated by an amazingly diverse range of plants, fish, birds and animals. And we are told that at least 122 factors have been discovered that make our planet able to sustain life. Factors like electromagnetic forces, gravity, ozone layer, the tides. The rotation of the earth ensures we have times of rest and are not cooked or frozen because the earth cools down as it rotates. And our planet is perfectly placed in relation to the sun. A 10% variation, either closer or further away from the sun, we would either burn up or freeze and life would cease. We have plants that cleanse the air of carbon and replace it with oxygen. The earth has a magnetic core of molten material that is vital to the way that the earth sits in its place in the, in the earth, in the universe. And within creation, we see an incredible diversity, incredible complexity, fantastic harmony and cooperation between the species Amazing colours, incredible beauty, inborn instincts and so many complementary creatures that are designed to depend upon each other like the bees and the flowers. And the more science gets to see things microscopically, the greater the complexity and brilliance of design is revealed. The hummingbird can flap its wings 70 times a second. If you're starting to fall asleep, just try doing your finger 70 times a second, moving from one side to the other. That's an amazing thing about the creation. There are so many examples of things that God has created that are beyond human capacity to even think about. Think of the human eye. Incredible complexity. Unbelievably fast adjustment mechanisms to adjust to changes in light and colour. It's said that we can actually discern 500 different shades of some colours. At conception, over a million sensory nerves grow from the brain and the eye toward each other and all connect perfectly to give us the great brilliance of sight. Even Charles Darwin, the founder of the origin of the species and evolution, said this, that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances could have been formed by natural selection seems, free, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. He was honest enough to say that you couldn't possibly believe the eye would just happen to come into existence by chance. And yet his disciples are still preaching that in our schools everywhere. Think of the raw power packed inside one little atom you can hardly see without a microscope. When that power is unleashed, look what it does. And then we come down to the marvels of DNA. Only in the last 50 years have we unlocked the life code that controls the cells and mechanisms of all living things. Could this incredible structure just happen? the marvels of DNA, a chain of coded signals in every human cell. Let me just give you two factors that might just make you appreciate the complexity of DNA. In one human cell, which again you need a microscope to see, there are three billion pieces of data. That's 100,000 library books. In one cell you can't even see. A two millimetre strand of DNA contains so much information. Now, two millimetres, you can hardly see it. But a strand of DNA, two millimetres long, contains so much information. If you put all that information onto CDs, the stack of CDs would be 160,000 kilometres high. 
Isn't that incredible? This remarkable chain of atoms that create and regulate life. You know, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Selfish Gene, which he criticised the fact that they had not discovered a reason for much of the DNA in the human body. He's now got eagle over his face because now they have got down that almost 96% they have actually found the reason for the DNA. And much of it is repair mechanisms. And it's all contained inside those cells in our bodies. No wonder the Bible said we are fearfully and wonderfully woven together. That's Psalm 139. And DNA is so remarkable that even Richard Dawkins, when pressed on television on the BBC by John Lennox, had to admit, when they said to him, how can you go on saying DNA formed by, was formed by chance, he admitted that DNA must have been placed here by spacemen. Incredible, isn't it? They can go on believing anything but God. We now have space travel. The Hubble goes further and further out. Telescopes that keep expanding our knowledge of the universe. And we find there are more and more universes and space almost incomprehensible in our terms and yet unknown to us. And we are faced with so many evidences of intelligent design. And we make the obvious conclusion there is an all-powerful, unlimited and all-wise creator behind it. It is incredible that so many in the world choose to believe in the unproven theory of evolution. Everything based upon pure random chance. A discredited theory they cling to that says everything you see came into being from nothing and for no reason at all. It just happened by pure chance. To believe this wonderful complexity developed from nothing takes much more faith than coming to grips with the creator whose immense physicality may be far beyond their ability to comprehend, but a creator who reveals himself to us in his word. And of the created things, perhaps the most wonderful thing God created was the human mind itself. We have amazing minds far beyond what evolution, if it were true, could deliver. Minds with reasoning, creativity, expression, language, writing. Minds that can quickly compute, imagine, think intelligently and plan and calculate things. But above all, human minds, unlike the animals, are capable of abstract thought, are morally capable to love God, obey God, to understand his righteousness and to worship him. And they are painfully aware of their own mortality and can seek for a greater life beyond this mortal veil. What a wonderful creator our God is. Created us in his own image and his own likeness. Surely he would communicate to us his purpose and reasons for so creating. And he says to us, he has spoken to us by his spirit, his word and his son. So the number one factor to believe in the Bible is the eloquent witness of creation around us. Number two factor is the Bible itself. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit is the Bible's claim to authenticity. And the Bible is undeniably a very ancient book. It is also the undoubtedly the most doc documented ancient text that exists in the world. There are so many manuscripts supporting its authenticity and accuracy. And inside itself, it's incredibly accurate. It possesses an amazing internal harmony, despite its 66 component books being compiled far apart in time, far apart in distance, and the varied occupations of the authors. And the Bible was once ridiculed by the higher critics as historically inaccurate and unreliable. But the Bible has outlived all of its detractors. Places the Bible once spoken of, not believed to exist by the higher critics, have now been unearthed, Babylon, Nineveh, and so on. Historical facts and names of people once scorned as myths have been verified by later archaeology 
Pilate, Jehu, Jehoiakim and many others. And all around the world, over 200 ancient civilizations have similar legends of a worldwide flood with a few people saved and animals saved in a ship. Again, backing up the authenticity of the Bible record. But even more impressive are the Bible's inspired comments about the earth and the universe. I want you to come to Isaiah chapter 40. Let's see what God claims in Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12. The Bible contains so many inspired statements made thousands of years ago that have only recently been verified by scientific discovery. We're going to look at a few. But in verse 12, we had God's claim. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? God's done that. No one else can explain where all of those things came from. But come down to verse 22. Look what God says here. It says there, God sits on the circle of the earth. Up until the last couple of hundred years, most of mankind believed in a flat earth, not a spherical planet floating in space. We now understand that the opposing magnetic forces are out there that keep the earth, it's this circular earth in its perfect orbit. No wonder God could say over 3,000 years ago that he sits on the circle of the earth and he hangs the world upon nothing. You know, those are facts that man did not understand until they sent people out there and cameras out there to see the earth from a distance. And they found the earth just floating beautifully in space, as God said it was, hanging there upon nothing. Look at verse 22. It goes on to say that God stretches out the heavens as a curtain. We now appreciate that our universe is gradually expanding all the time. And that's understood to be critical to the Earth's balance and place in the orbit as it goes through space. Come to Jeremiah chapter 31, another statement made by the Bible. Jeremiah 31, we're going to read from verse 35 and verse 36. Thus saith Yahweh, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. And you see, there was the, the, the outlining for us, the amazing link between the moon and the tides that we now understand occurs. The moon is a light for the night and divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. And it goes on to say in verse 36 that these ordinances of the heavens are so reliable. And we know that because men navigate by the stars. They are so reliable. They can predict which way to send a spaceship that they might hit exactly the planet they want to hit because the heavenly bodies are utterly reliable. And that's why God says in verse 36, if those ordinances, if those controlled things of the heavens depart, says God, then you can understand I'll cast Israel off forever. That's the utter reliability of God based upon the stability of the heavenly bodies. But we now understand the influence of the moon upon the waters. In the first of Corinthians 15 verse 41, Paul says, For one star differeth from another star in glory. And when he wrote that, it was hard to understand what he meant. And now with the Hubble and powerful telescopes, we can see a huge variety of stars and their fantastic colours and formations. The latest estimate of the number of the stars is 10 to the 15th value. If you don't understand that, ask one of your maths teachers. 10 to the 15th value, that's an incredible number of stars. And the further they go, the more universes and stars they find. Come to Job chapter 38. Another evidence that the mind that caused the Bible to be written was a divine mind because it speaks of things that are not understood at the time that it was written. 
Now in Job 36, 37 and 38, you have described the covering of the, the Earth's water cycle. We haven't got time to go through and to locate them all, but you can find them if you go through. Just for example, in chapter 37, you've got the noise and the sound, the lightning in verse 3 and verse 4, thundering, verse 5, thundering, verse 6, small rain and great rain, verse 9, the whirlwind, the cold, the breath of frost in verse 10, the waters, the watering of the thick cloud, the bright cloud, the light cloud in verse 15, and so it goes on. And these chapters are all about the brilliance of the water cycle in creation. I've made a list here of what the, the, the different ones that you can find. The covering of the sea floor. The small drops of water being drawn up by evaporation. Trickling rain and mist. Clouds that deliver pouring rain for men. The burstings, as it says, of the mounting up of the clouds. Have you ever lived in Queensland about four o'clock in the afternoon? The great big clouds swell up for the thunderstorm that's coming. The mighty thunderings in the heavens and the spreading of the lightning. Snow, light rain and heavy rains, the monsoons in many countries. Winds, whirlwinds, blizzards and cyclones, they're all here in the book of Job. But God made a challenge to Job in verse 22. Look what he said in chapter 38, verse 22. He said this. Hast thou entered to the treasures of the snow or seen the treasures of the hail? And until we got microscopes, nobody understood what that meant. Only now can we see snowflakes magnified and understand this verse. There are wonderful patterns and intricate designs of snowflakes and icicles, all of them based upon complex six-sided patterns. And they're incredibly beautiful. Can you believe that just happened? In verse 30 of Job chapter 38, the waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. You ever thought about that verse? The waters are hid as with a stone. When lakes and ponds freeze, there's usually water underneath in which fish and other life can go on living. The face might be frozen, the surface might be frozen, but the other goes on living. Now think about the unique quality of water. It can exist in three states, ice, liquid and gas. Incredibly, water becomes more dense, that is heavier, until it reaches four degrees centigrade. So you cool water down, it'll become heavier and heavier as you cool it down. Then after four degrees centigrade, it becomes less dense and eventually solidifies into ice at zero degrees centigrade. What an amazing thing that water has such a quality. So why did God create it like that? Well, as the water freezes, the, the, warmer, the, the water which is lighter, that is, that which has become solidified, floats. And ice floats. And under the ice, waterborne life can survive in the freezing conditions above. Read it again. The waters are hid as with a stone. You can drive cars on ice in some places. And the face of the deep is frozen. And God said that was happening. And we now understand how that happens. Every other liquid we know of would freeze from the bottom up. But water has this remarkable ability to, to, to get denser until 4 degrees centigrade and then get lighter after that, once it freezes. How could so many human authors writing so long ago have been so accurate about climatic and geographic things that we can now confirm as being absolutely accurate to what God said 3,000 years ago? And the Bible's never been proved wrong on anything to do with geography and the functions of the world. Think about this. The Bible had medicine correct. God gave his law to Israel about three and a half thousand years ago. Concepts that were far ahead of all medicine, all knowledge at the time. When you think how slow mankind has been to learn wisdom in the matters of health and sanitation, 
Until the last couple of hundred years, there was no concept of germs, viruses, infections, and disease control and safe food. Not long ago, doctors were regularly infecting patients because of not washing hands. They were draining blood to combat infections and boring holes in skulls to let out demons and many other dangerous practices. And yet you go to the Bible and you find God's wise and good laws for Israel incorporated frequent washing of the body and of clothes, the isolation of disease, proper sanitation, the value of clean running water to health, the avoidance of foods likely to contain parasitical dangers. And our God said in Leviticus 17 verse 11, the life is in the blood. Now we understand what a remarkable thing blood is, that it carries to all parts of the body the oxygen that the body needs to replenish the cells, and that it has amazing clotting mechanisms that require about five different stages to make it happen. And that was all written three and a half thousand years ago. We have plenty of sound reason to trust the Bible is God's word because it's far beyond human design. Our third factor to believe the Bible, and perhaps the most convincing of all, is the witness of Bible prophecy. So many things were predicted in the Bible, hundreds of years ahead of their time. And then they came to pass with great precision and amazing attention to detail. And we know the story of Babylon, of Tyre, the incredible history of the Jews. The 64 amazingly precise prophecies of Daniel chapter 11 that have been fulfilled in the exact order they were given. The rise of the predicted Roman Catholic apostasy and the growing of the man of sin and the papal system. All of that predicted in the Bible ahead of time. And we look out today at Russia and Israel as the key players and see other nations aligning to the prophecies of the ancient prophets. And no man can predict the future so accurately. We must believe there is a God who caused men to write his words. A God who not only has the foreknowledge of what will happen, but the power to make it happen when he wants it to happen. And so Bible prophecy is a great witness to us. Where we see so much Bible prophecy has come to pass with exact precision, we can be absolutely assured and confident about the remaining prophecies that we're still waiting to be fulfilled. The fourth witness to believe is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was also the subject of much Bible prophecy. Psalm 16, my flesh shall rest in hope. They will not leave my soul in the grave. They will show me the path of life and so many other prophecies and types of the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of Christ. Added to that, we have the frequent predictions made by Jesus himself to his own disciples that he would be slain and would rise again on the third day. If that resurrection had not happened, he would rightly have been regarded as a self-deluded upstart in history ever since. But not so. The fact that he did rise means that God certainly exists because God raised him from the dead. Now, when we come to Jesus Christ, we are faced with somebody that is an enigma to the world. No serious student of history denies the actual existence and the teachings of Jesus happened. Our very calendar with its BC and AD dates testifies to his impact upon the world. Even the Muslims recognise Jesus as a great prophet and a teacher. But so many people want to deny the miracles that he did. And especially they want to reject his resurrection. Why? To accept the resurrection took place raises all kinds of unwelcome consequences for mankind. For most of the world, they just hope it never happened. But so few bother to check out the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So what evidence do we have? We have lots of circumstantial evidence. Our justice system will convict, convict offenders, providing the evidence is beyond reasonable doubt. 
We depend upon eyewitnesses and circumstantial evidence. And the resurrection of Christ meets all those criteria. Here's the case for the risen Christ. Number one, the tomb was empty. The body was missing, despite the fact that guards were there. A Roman governor's seal had been placed and a heavy stone was in place. There was never any logical or reasonable explanation given for the absence of the body. Only lies about the body being stolen. The very fact that there was such determined provision to guard the tomb was designed to make sure there was no mistake that he would stay in the grave, that no one could steal the body, and yet he was gone. And they claimed the disciples did it. And yet we know those same disciples had not understood nor believed the words of Jesus about the resurrection. We know they were totally demoralised and disorganised at the time. It's ridiculous to say that they stole the body. We do know, however, the dramatic impact of the resurrection had on those same disillusioned and confused disciples three days later. How they were changed when the risen Lord was among them. They were suddenly completely transformed into fearless witnesses of the resurrection, now quite willing to die for their conviction that Jesus was alive. And besides the twelve, there were many other witnesses. On one occasion, over 500 eyewitnesses at once saw the resurrected Lord. And most of those had not expected he would ever rise. But the sceptic would say to us, well, you'd expect his disciples to say that he was alive. But there are more impressive witnesses than his disciples. Even more compelling are the unwilling witnesses. The many priests and the Pharisees who now converted to join the ecclesia, as we read about in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Men like Saul of Tarsus, initially violently opposed to the concept of the risen Jesus, Saul was suddenly and totally turned around to become the most foremost preacher of the risen Christ. The impact of the resurrection on non-Jews and the pagan society was also dramatic. And the gospel of Christ now made dramatic inroads into the Greek world. That progress and change would have been impossible coming from a bunch of uneducated fishermen had it not been backed up by the resurrection of Christ as the foundation of their preaching. You search the New Testament. You will not find any Jewish leader denying the resurrection took place. Oh yes, they told the disciples to stop stirring up the people. They argued against the law of Moses being replaced. But no one got up and denied the resurrection had taken place. They knew that was a lie that the body had been stolen. And within 300 years, the great earthquake predicted in the apocalypse had occurred. And the pagan Roman Empire became Christianised. An amazing transformation of the way the world thought. And since that time, the majority of the civilised world has heard the claims of the resurrected Jesus. And he's made an impact amazing in his significance for somebody considered by the postmodernists as a self-deluded upstart. But we take great confidence in the fact that Christ is alive, that God has begun a plan that we can participate in. So we have so many reasons to believe what we do believe, brethren and sisters and young people, so many reasons to trust the Bible as utterly reliable and to accept in faith the weight of the evidence that God is and that he has a purpose. I want you to come back to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to speak about that all-conquering faith. This chapter has been designated the honour roll of the faithful, and so it is. In chapter 12, verse 1, we have the picture, the dramatic picture, of ourselves on the track at the Olympic Games. The stands packed with cheering supporters, a great cloud of witnesses, all those saints who finished their race, cheering us on to run the race with endurance. But I want to start in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. The definition of faith. I'm going to give you Weymouth's translation and then Brother John Thomas's translation of verse 1. Now, faith, says Weymouth, is a well-grounded assurance of that which we hope 
and a conviction of the reality of the things we do not see, for by it the saints of old won God's approval. Brother Thomas said, faith is the confident anticipation of things hoped for, the full persuasion of things we do not see. I want you to notice the emphasis upon things which are not seen. And Hebrews 11 is based upon people seeing things that no one else could see. Things that God has done in the past so long ago. Or things that's going to happen in the future. God wants us to see them. Abel saw the Lamb of God that would come into the world and so offered in faith. Jude tells us that Enoch saw Yahweh coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to punish the ungodly. In verse 7, Noah saw things not seen as yet, rain flood upon the earth. In verse 10, Abraham looked for a city. He saw the kingdom afar off. In verse 13, his family embraced and saw those things. They saw them afar off, it says. In verse 23, the parents of Moses saw the divine purpose with that son. In verse 27, Moses saw the invisible and so rejected Egypt. And we see Jesus sitting at God's right hand, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Faith sees the unseen things. Faith accepts the rationality of things which are not provable in human terms. And it translates that persuasion into action. In Hebrews 11 and verse 3, the very first witnesses that are mentioned are ourselves. Look what it says. Through faith we understand that the ages were framed by the word of God. So the things which we see are things that nobody else can see. They're not made of concrete things you can say. Well, that's why we believe. We take the circumstantial evidence and we say, well, if we can see that, then we believe things that are not yet seen in the earth. The Bible opens with that most challenging statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a plan, there is a timetable. The acceptance of God's unlimited power, far beyond our comprehension, makes all past miracles and the yet unfulfilled promises possible. We can understand that God has a plan and a purpose. And so we turn to the Bible, the maker's instructions for authority and for guidance and for hope. And the greatest compliment we can pay to God is to believe him, to accept his faithfulness to his promises, to believe in his ability to perform what he has promised is the only rational choice that we can make. We all hate being disbelieved. How much more do you think God hates being disbelieved and is insulted by people who can't believe when he's put so much evidence in front of them? And we have to make a choice to believe in our God. Think of these things that happened in the past that God says happened, that we do believe. A virgin conceived. God shared parentage with a human mother. That son lived a sinless life. That son was raised from the dead and now shares God's throne. That God can forgive our sins and wipe out all the guilt of our past. You might have noted in Hebrews 11 that Samson is here. Most of us wouldn't want to have much to do with someone like Samson. But it's how he entered his life that matters. And God will finish his work with us, brethren and sisters. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And Christ will come back in power and glory and shake the world and reform it. And for many of us, the promise that God will raise the dead means so much. He will remake their bodies bring them back to health again and put into those bodies the minds and the characters that were developed in their lifetime. And then God will glorify his faithful saints with immortality to be equal unto the angels, given perfect bodies and perfect minds, fit for eternity. And God will wipe away all tears, a promise that many of us with hurting hearts and mental scars really struggle to understand but which we hang on to in faith. So how do we get that faith? Well, faith comes by hearing, brethren and sisters.
hearing the word of God, constant reference and application to the Bible. But we have to make a choice to hear, to read it, to study it, yes, to become familiar with it, yes. But then we choose to believe. We decide to apply what we have learned. And our Lord Jesus Christ gives us the motivation. Come to Hebrews chapter 12. You know, Jesus is termed by Moffat as the pioneer of personal faith in Hebrews 12 verse 2. The author and finisher of our faith. A trailblazer. The absolute example of how faith works in our lives. He thought against the shame, the agony and the suffering by looking to what could not be seen with human eyes. Jesus saw his father's face awaiting him. He longed for the joyful day, would sit at his father's right hand. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy of thy countenance, it says in Acts 2 verse 28 when it's quoted into that. He looked forward to the companionship and cooperation with God and seeing his brethren in the kingdom. And so we must go on believing, brethren and sisters. We have great cause to believe in the God who made all things. Let us therefore determine to put our trust in the wisdom of God and not in the doctrines of men. I want you to finish with me in the first of Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul wrote to the Corinthians who were facing the wisdom of the age. The wisdom of the Greeks was legendary. He pointed out that God has chosen the weak and the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise and mighty. And I want to leave you with these thoughts in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. Do not follow the pernicious ideas and the thoughts of the postmodernists with their rejection of God the Creator, with their thoughts that they can do what they like with their lives and get away with it. That there is no absolute truth. Reject those things. That's the wisdom of men. But in the power of God. And brethren and sisters and young people, we urge you to stay with your Bible. We have great reasons for confidence. And the day is not far away when our Lord shall come and say to us all, we trust. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord.